welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better. And if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often, it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Today we're speaking with Professor Mike Matthews, a military psychologist who's been at the US Military Academy West Point for over two decades. He is, to my knowledge, the most published military psychologist in the world, having written literally hundreds of academic papers, most famously co-writing the original paper on grit with Angela Duckworth and colleagues. And also he's written some terrific books that are listed in the show notes. I've been privileged to know Mike for over 10 years and his openness, patience and friendship has been of immense help to me, both as I recovered from my own burnout, but also as I began to work solely in stressful situations. The research pioneered by Mike's department at West Point has changed my life and practice and I've found the research into what leaders in extreme situations do to succeed and protect their people has been the most useful research for leaders of any business going through change. So even if you're a little sceptical about what the military can teach you about leading in in business, I ask for your trust just this once. Because if you want leaders of integrity, courage and character who lead in a values-based way, then perhaps counterintuitively to some, the military has been the best source of research and practice in that space for the last two decades. Now, we introduced Mike quite thoroughly in the video, so I'll get straight to it. Guys, this is Mike Matthews. Mike is a professor of engineering psychology at the United States Military Academy, West Point. He's been there since 2000, so that's over 21 years just coming up. He's written literally hundreds of research papers, beginning his career in psychology with aversive conditioning and research, and most recently and famously, He now researches and writes on the science of grit and character. Mike's been a constant presence at West Point as they've adjusted to the new reality of preparing cadets for what became certain conflict. And I know he's played a very important role in adjusting that and developing to this increasingly significant role for the academy. His stellar career took a shift in 2004-05 when he developed a a long-term collaboration with Martin Seligman and Christopher Peterson that was facilitated by a Templeton Foundation Fellowship. And this also started his work with Angela Duckworth on grit. And the first research of that, as I understand it, came from West Point and working with Mike. In 2011, Mike published this book with two colleagues, Pat Sweeney and Paul Lester. Um, It's called Leadership in Dangerous Situations. And it brought together a decade of some of the finest research into leadership in dangerous or in extremist situations. Now, whilst this may not seem entirely relevant to a business audience, I urge you to still get the book. It's nearly 10 years old. It's due for a second edition, but it is still one of the best. It's my most used book on leadership, Um, and particularly the article that Mike wrote with Pat Sweeney, which was right at the end, a holistic approach to leading in dangerous situations is comfortably one of my top three articles on leadership that I've ever come across. So we'll definitely be getting into that. Now, in 2014, Mike wrote Headstrong, How Psychology is Revolutionizing War. A second edition for that came out in 2020, and it was described by one general as unquestionably the best book on psychology and war ever written. And in 2020, fast forwarding over, I think, three or four other other books in that time, um, Mike co-authored The Character Edge, Leading and Winning with Integrity with Lieutenant General um, Bob Caslin where he sets out the practice and the science of character-based leadership. Now, as these podcasts, as you know, these podcasts are focused on what can leaders do to help themselves, their orgs, and their people to better handle the challenges of the pandemic recovery. And so if you were looking for a psychologist anywhere in the world to help you with that question, I cannot think of anyone better than Mike Matthews. So Mike, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for that glowing uh, introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to that. <laughs> Try. 
<laughs> so all downhill from here, mate, right? <laughs> By way of uh, openness here, I'll, I'll tell your audience that, that Jonathan and I have known each other, what, 10 years probably? Yeah, Some, yeah all, 10. Jonathan visited West Point a number of years ago, and we uh, enjoyed a... Um, a cold, frothy beverage uh, one evening and, and talked about these things, about leadership and uh, particularly leadership in not just dangerous situations, but just challenging situations, which I think the corporate world is is certainly a part of, right, mm. uh, for sure. And then oh. over time, my wife and I made a visit. We walked, we took the Wainwright, Wainwright path across Northern England. We walked across yeah. sea to sea, Northern England. On the way back, we came by London and Jonathan Finally showed us, gave us the grand, quick, quick, but grand tour of London. So one of the highlights in our, our recent years. So thanks to that, Jonathan. Yeah, very welcome, mate. So, Mike, first question, really, just to get us going, is you've been a, a psychologist for a very long time. So how did you get from high school basketball to law enforcement to rats to cows, which I think is a, the phrase for juniors at the, the military academy? And you're now back to basketball with your work with the San Antonio Spurs. Um, I mean, short, how did your career as a psychologist come about and how has it developed? Well, if you've ever saw the movie Forrest Gump, I feel like a little bit like Forrest Gump in some respects, that uh, circumstances dictated uh, and provided me with a lot of great, great opportunities in life. And it's funny you should mention high school because in June, in just a couple of months, I'm going back for my 50th year class reunion. And Imagine that. I'll see people that I have not seen in 50 years and they'll recognize me because I'm two meters tall, but I'm probably going to have a problem with some with some of the folks. So you just put that in perspective. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I was just a typical high school student. I should, if, if you looked at my biography in high school, you would see zero indicators of future success. None. I had like about a C plus average. I goofed off. I didn't read my assignments. I played basketball, but not not very well, not enough to get a college scholarship. I was just sort of sort of going along in life and, and just, you know, taking each day as it came. But I didn't have a grand plan or any any sort of, you know, long-term goals in mind, you know, just sort of day to day. And I think, you know, it's sort of unfortunate. Uh, but on the other hand, I now tell people I, I didn't want to peak too early in life. <laughs> you know, so we, I still had some gas left in the tank when I graduated from high school. But in my senior year in high school, I um, took my first psychology course and something just clicked. So it was the first course I took as a high school student that really inspired me and and mattered to me. And I could see its relevance. And I knew right then that I was going to be a psychology major in college. And when I got to college, I knew I was going to study hard. And it's amazing. I discovered this instrumental relationship between studying and grades. The more you study, the higher grades. Imagine that. What an insight. And really was preparing myself from that day forward to be a, a psychologist. My interest in psychology then, as it is now, is in what's called experimental psychology or research psychology, less so clinical, even though these days a lot of my research has implications for well-being and, and adjustment and resilience and so forth. So um, all kind of at the same time, uh, I was in, became interested in law enforcement because my o- older brother become a law enforcement officer, and, and I was able to do a couple of ride-alongs with police departments while I was in college, really seriously considered a, a career in law enforcement because it's kind of very engaging and interesting to do, but finally decided that psychology would win out, so I went off to grad school, and we got all the things we got to fill in here. <laughs> My work in graduate school focused on animal learning and behavior, but hence, Jonathan mentioned looking at at aversive conditioning, which is things that are unpleasant and hurt and how they influence our behavior and our cognitions, our emotions, using animal models. But later on, I forgot my PhD, I joined the Air Force, was an Air Force officer assigned to various jobs in the Air Force, including teaching at the Air Force Academy. But all of my research going forward from that point was on human subjects. Moreover, it was on looking at predictors of excellence and flourishing, not looking at pathology. The Air Force gave me the bug to to become a scientist who looks at the conditions which allow people to be their best, even in extreme situations, as as might sometimes be found in the military. Then over time, you know, I I eventually ended up here at West Point, and I've been here a year when 9-11 happened. 
I was teaching a course called Experimental Psychology that fall on September 11th of uh, 2001. I was in my office right before class, uh, saw the planes had crashed into the towers. I had class those hours, but we didn't hold class. We put, put the video, the news video up that day. And we saw the towers come down. I remember my cadets, these are now, these were juniors at West Point or what we call cows, wanting to quit West Point that day and enlist in the army so they could, could fight and, and uh, defeat this enemy. Whoever it might have been, they didn't, we didn't know at the time. They didn't know at the time. But they were highly motivated to engage. And I kept saying, don't worry, you're going to get lots of time to do this, graduate, get your degree, become officers. And they all did. So I was very soon after coming to West Point that I guess I had my baptism under fire in the sense of not just studying about the potentiality of war, but the actuality of it. Since then, I've had over, you know, nothing to be happy about, but, you know, well over 100 cadets who've been killed in action, 10 times that many who've been badly wounded, and many, many times that many who've just exemplified themselves as great young combat leaders and gone on to great careers in the, in the Army under most horrible conditions. So I'll just pause right there, Jonathan, and um, maybe just add that it was about that same time that I really became interested in the role of character, the influence of character, positive attributes of, of behaviors and beliefs and attitudes that make the world better that we have, like honesty and integrity and hard work and capacity to love and transcendence and these things and how they play out, especially for young men and women who are in the military and find themselves under really significant stress and danger or law enforcement, or firefighters, or medical frontline personnel. Think of the, of the videos you've seen of our physicians and nurses and other medical professionals fighting this war against COVID-19, stress involved in that, and the danger involved in that. And I think you can extrapolate on to other settings, including corporate settings. So that's really what motivated my interest in character. And, and you know, I tell you what, what really stands out there, Mike, it's a correlation and the similarity between your the direction of your career and the path you took with Martin Seligman and 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 your research interests because he started off with I mean I don't think it was rats it was dogs wasn't it that he was you know doing nasty things to dogs and then figuring out well how can you how can you heal that which I think was one of the things in blowing up the behaviorist experiments that yeah yeah we've just made a dog to be you know to lose all its sense of agency and now it's like how do you rediscover that yeah, it's really funny because because when I went to graduate school in 1975 to get my doctorate, Seligman's work was just super famous right then, the work on helplessness and right. avoidance learning in dogs. And he also had done some research on rats. And so I, my first two or three years in grad school, I read every paper that man wrote. Now, I'd never met him, you know, but I knew of his work and it was highly influential in, in my thinking. And it is interesting how our careers have been parallel because it wasn't too long after that in fact, I know him quite well now. We were, we were riding from um, his lab at University of Pennsylvania out to his house one day, and, and he said, you know, Mike, he said, there's been three big things I've done in my life. First thing was learned helplessness. He said, it was funny. He said, when, you know, it sort of came to him all at once, he thought it was important, but he could see an end to it, right? He, so, and the second thing was learned optimism, uh, which was sort of the second big thing. Same way, he said, it's like, it's like the flip side of learned helplessness. What if you empower dogs, yeah. people, uh, under favorable conditions to build a mental set to allow them to flourish and, and to excel in life? But you said, I could see an end to that. You know, I'm going to do this for five years and end it. This third thing, of course, was the uh, founding of positive psychology in 1998. What he, I'll never forget what he, what he told me was when that came to me, I, I don't, didn't then, don't now, and can't foresee an end to positive psychology. By that point, I had the same point of view. I migrated from rats. I didn't do any uh, work with dogs, but rat research to human research with the, um, the Air Force uh, to this, this epiphany that, that positive psychology, which is, has been described as a psychology for the rest of us, okay? meaning that traditional psychology is a disease-focused model that, that, and it's not necessary, it's important, has focused for 100 years on that 10 to 15% of the population that have significant behavioral, emotional, and psychological issues. But very little attention in psychology had been paid to people in, that, in the upper part of the curve, people who are doing okay but could do better. And so to me, that's what 
people who work in extreme situations are all about. They're, they're functioning. They need to be better. And positive psychology, therefore, provided a theoretical or conceptual fra framework for me to, uh, to build upon, uh, in my case, looking at character, to see what we can do to empower people to do better in, in challenging contexts, challenging jobs. There's a few areas where we can go from here. The first one that I really want us to get into is, is the comprehensive soldier fitness work that you did to support that with Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania and, and the service that you did for the, for the men and women of, of the U.S. forces. When we're looking at Colonel Chambers' questions is, is, does PTSD exist and do we have a problem with it? And then the next question is, well, what can we do about it? And it's like, well, actually, well, let's prepare our people better. And that, again, is, is not the disease model of that mental illness is something that you catch. Whilst it can be just severe trauma that overloads anybody, it can also be, well, how are you coming into this? And that's been my experience of working with people under stress is, well, what's the load? What's your preparation? To what degree are you at your best? And, and the whole research that you guys have, have looked at with the whole, that PTSD is actually dramatically linked to moral issues, not just not just physical or mental trauma, but a moral issue as well. The other thing I was thinking about there as well was when we, we get into the character risk model that you talk about in the character edge, which for me also shows this whole area around, well, how can we, how can we create an environment of, of well-being and flourishing? And I know where the research is coming out now with mental illness, because again, it's often someone misses out on something as a young person, either in the, the context, the environment, or in the system that they're in, and the organization or the, the family or community and that then can lead to problems later on which i think is what you you guys talk about preemptively with with character risk don't you so, so just as a just a step back then in the uk there isn't not many people know about what comprehensive soldier fitness was or is and how it came about so you think back so just project back 13 or 14 years i mean our NATO partners, including your country, were, were big allies, you know, and, and heavily involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. In our own case, uh, by 2008, uh, we've been at war for seven years. And you're probably tracking the news media now that, you know, the U.S. at least, it's, and NATO as well, intends to pull out of Afghanistan, basically on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. A long time to be at war. And the war was pretty hot and, and heavy those first seven or eight years, particularly when the decision was made, uh, rightly or wrongly, to, to invade Iraq in 2003. So your listeners may or, or may not know, but the U.S. has what's called an all-volunteer force. So what that means is we rely upon a relatively small number of Americans who volunteer to serve in our military to fight our wars. And in comparison to Vietnam or even World War II, where you were many people, many of the fighters were, were combatants were drafted into the service. And with it, you can see where it would end. You're drafted for two years, let's say. You do your tour of, of combat in Vietnam. If you lived through it, you were done. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. Put yourself in the position now of a, an American soldier or from another, other countries as well, other nations as well, who's, who's a professional soldier. Uh, you go to war in 2001 for a year and you come back. You spend a year uh, sort of decompressing and training, and then you get redeployed for another year, and you come back. And by that time, they, we had soldiers who had been deployed three, sometimes four times. Mm. Our special forces who have shorter deployments, six and seven and eight times yeah. in, Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in places you don't even know about, right? So, And so what we were seeing was, with there being no light at the end of the tunnel, we were seeing an increase in, in negative adjustments, uh, pathological adjustments. So for instance, increase in drinking, alcohol-related incidents, uh, increases, you know, no, notably the suicide rate among soldiers doubled per 100,000, from about nine per 100,000 to about 18 or 20 per 100,000. Conduct problems with families, family disturbances, family fights, uh, motorcycle accidents, you know, getting in trouble with your boss at work, just the kinds of behaviors that people, some people show when they're under high stress. And so the chief of staff of the army at the time, George Casey, now in our army, the chief serves joint chiefs of staff, or so the, the heads of all the services basically lead their service. So General Casey was the four-star general in charge of the army. And he knew, he had the insight to know that we couldn't solve the problem 
of increased suicide and all these other things that were going on by hiring. There are not enough clinical psychologists and psychiatrists to hire to fix it. You know, once people have become sufficiently disturbed to show that level of, of uh, maladaptive behaviors, right, those types of actions, it was it would be really hard to put a Band-Aid on that. Rather, he, he wanted to know, would there be a way to have a training program that's proactive to imbue into soldiers and their families, really, the skills needed so that when they first come into contact with combat and military stress, that they would be better prepared to have a, a resilient response rather than a pathological response. So what happened is, is uh, General Casey contacted Marty Seligman, who contacted me. Actually, somebody from the Pentagon contacted me. We have another person who was uh, Rich, Dr. Rich Carmona. He was a former Surgeon General of the U.S. And we had a Larry Dewey, who was a, a psychiatrist, an MD psychiatrist. We met with General Casey several times and his staff, laying out the argument that based on positive psychology and the principles that were emerging at that time, we could provide a program, which later came to be known as Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, which could be a, a, a training program for all soldiers and their families as, as it evolved. They said to imbue and prepare uh, these young soldiers and their leaders, for that matter, to, uh, to have a better chance of a, of a favorable outcome to these, these stressors that were inevitable at that point in time. Is that program still in operation now? Yes, yes. And so so it is. It's now called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness-2. So and there's probably a three someday. So the original, originally, uh, much of the original, if you'll pardon me, I'll just use CSF, yeah. Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. Originally, CSF had, you know, three main components to it, at least three. Maybe I'd parse it out. One is we had to develop a measure to measure the uh, sort of resilience, fitness of all the troops. And we did that by putting together something called the Global Assessment Tool, which continues to be given to all soldiers once a year. And it provides an assessment of their psychological health in the emotional domain. Are they depressed? Are, are they happy? You know, and related sorts of questions. Their social uh, resilience and fitness. Do they have social bonds that they can turn to to support them, family and friends? And actually, actually, the third third leg of it is family fitness. Do is we find that soldiers who have a, a close family relationship, either with their nuclear family, their 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 spouse and children, but also with their extended family, they tend to do better psychologically than those who are isolated. And then the fourth area which we assess is uh, we called it spirituality, but really we mean meaning and purpose. Hmm. They derive meaning and purpose from life. So there's that. So we assess that every year, and then we can. Each person who takes the test can see if they are pass, are in danger of failing, or actually failing in any one or all of those areas. Second thing is, if you are having trouble in one of those areas, we now have a series of uh, interventions, both the individual level and the unit level, to help build resilience. So let's say that you came out low on on social resilience. So there are a number of modules of uh, training you can take, uh, interventions developmental workshops to try to build that in you. So that's the second piece. And the third piece is the, and this is a big one, the Army has been training what are called master resilience trainers, where experts in in resilience train these trainers in sort of the psychology of resilience building, resilience skill building. And they, in turn, go out and and train the rest of the force. Mm. So over the last well, what's it been 12 years now, I guess, we've trained tens of thousands of MRTs, Master Resilience Trainers. They continue to go out and do that training for the Army today. Also proud and happy to say, the Air Force, the Navy, Marines, they all have, they don't call it the same thing, but similar programs. India has it. I think the Brits are working on it. So most, most modern contemporary militaries took CSF as a model for how to, to achieve this important goal within their military structure. As far as I'm aware, that, that hasn't been translated into civilian-based programs. Is that right? No, yeah. I, th- I think that's probably a fair summary, and I think there's a couple of reasons for it. So the, the military has vast economic and you know manpower resources that, let's say, that, for example, a local police department doesn't have. 
So let's say, a, you know, maybe something like the London Police Department, the London Fire Department, being a big city, would have the money and time and resources to do something like that. But many organizations, if not most organizations, don't have that. So it's, it's quite expensive and time consuming to put a systematic program like that together. It takes a lot of expertise. Mm. Could, it could just be that, that while in theory, and it, these, these, these techniques should work great in the corporate setting or great in any, anywhere for that matter. It may be some some structural barriers just getting it done, uh, but I think there's some other there are ways to do it that are that could still achieve the same goal and maybe not be quite as expensive. I mean, if you look at the way in which that the military often leads innovation, technological, the thing that I got so excited about when I first was re- you know when you were talking to me about it back in 2010, 11, and and Jill stuff as well, and and I was hopeful that that could then translate to to just the the work that companies say they're doing around mental health even in 20 in 2020 is nothing compared to what cfs was in cfs you know comprehensive solid fitness one and it's still the, the the whole idea of like yes do an assessment yes talk about how you know you're having challenges or whatever the only question though is what are you doing to get stronger and that's the thing so so for me the the real the benefit that you, and the, what you guys really just crushed it on was was saying that this was this is something not only is it important, but it's also we want you to get stronger. And then you, there's a way for the strong, the ones who are getting stronger, to go out and help others, which is the service orientation of of your service men and women, right? It's like, well, actually, I'm strong. I'm going to help others now. Doing what you describe, learning these resilient skills yourself, and then modeling them for others, and then developing others is really a leader responsibility or a leader imperative. Mm-hmm. From our perspective, so I would expect our most junior non-commissioned officer, uh, you know, a squad leader, all the way up to a brigade commander, for the well-being and resilience, health of all the soldiers. Whether you're in charge of five people or five thousand people, it needs to be one of the more important things you do each day. Now, I think that is inherent in military culture. You're always looking out for the soldier to your left and the soldier to your right. You look out for each other, the buddy system. It's inherent in when, when things work well, right? When soldiers are doing what they should be doing, that's the way it works. Now, you contrast that with the corporate setting. If there is a tendency, and I kind of understand it, where the corporate leaders may look at, say, well, we've, we get our, our workers one third of the day, five days a week. You know, and so as long as they come in and, and uh, produce a widget or meet sales goals or or whatever that that company is doing, maybe there's not the sense of it, of imperative, the sense of urgency for for those leaders to provide that type of enhancement uh, in in that organization. Now, I think better organizations probably recognize that and are trying to say take some steps. I, I, I think you're right. Your assessment is right that it's not not nearly as widespread. No, I do know. I think there's a there's a whole area around um and it, and this gets into your the whole book around the character edge of winning winning the right way as you describe that's the last chapter isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, winning the right way. And the the, the distinction between are you winning today or are you winning forever. And also what is forever? And if and I, and I think that the sense of being part of something bigger than yourself and you're doing your you're helping to turn the wheel. It could be that you're in it for a career, but I, I, my guess is that most of your cadets are not anticipating that. It's things like get a great degree, one of the best universities in the world, do a, you know, what minimum service is that five years after graduation? Yeah, generally speaking, yeah, that's right. And then, and then, you know, move on and then, but still be a very productive member of society, right? With all the, with all the training and the values that you've had. Whereas in, in, in business, sadly, increasingly, it's become increasingly short termist, but also less and less interested in, an industry, a community, or a broader view. It's just sort out your results today and the rest of it, you know, leave to somebody. Yeah. You know, as part of our, our research for this book, The Character Edge, Bob Caslin and I uh, did a very lengthy interview, kind of like this, like we're doing now, but with um, with the CEO and president of Johnson & Johnson, this mega corporation that everybody kind of knows about. They're in the news now because of the vaccine, J&J vaccine. They've been in the news in a, in a bad way, you know, in recent years because of the opiate crisis and some of the products they sold were, were uh, abused. But uh, we want to talk to them about, you know, how does a organization that embraces character respond to those sorts of stress stresses to the organization? 
So I learned a couple of really interesting things about that organization. First of all, the original owner uh, came, developed what he calls this credo. It's basically a creed around which all other decisions about the corporation are made. You guys out there in podcast land, just Google Johnson & Johnson Credo, C-R-E-D-O. It'll pop up and you can read it. And it's a matter of principles that, that embrace human dignity and productivity. It's not, it's not all about the bottom line. It's about being a good organization and a good place to work and, and developing and developing and selling good products to your customers. And as we probe deeper, you know, you said something that's what triggered this whole thought of mine. In many cases in today's world, corporate world, you make mid-management, well, to make higher, you leave that company and go to a different company. Mm-hmm. You get started, right? And you want to be even higher than what you do is you get hired, you go to yet another company. And this just continues. You see this all the time. Well, the, uh, the CEO of, of Johnson & Johnson said, that's not true for Johnson & Johnson. He was hired. So the CEO was a West Point graduate, did his five years in the Army, then went to work as, a, as the most junior level management you can. It's an entry-level management position, J&J. He stayed there through all these years. Now he's the chief. He's the chief of it. His entire senior leadership team, about 80% of them did the same thing. Very few of them are brought in you know, from another company. It happens sometimes, but not so much. So corporations like that, which value developing talent and see talent as a long-term part of, the, of, of their, their corporate model, of their corporate community, might be better or more inclined to- oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. Like to engender positive working conditions. For I know in, in the character, you talk about um, Bob McDonald, former head of the, of the veterans of the VA, right? Um, and he was also the, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, which was where I grew up corporately. And they had, a, I think, an even stricter policy that if you didn't get, the only way to get up through company was to join at the beginning. Um, it's changed slightly when they started buying a lot more companies. And so when when they had the merger with Gillette, which was the first merger rather than a, a takeover, and that changed somewhat, but it was still very much a, the belief that you you know you need to learn the learn the system, but also that the values need to be right. Back then it was it was one of the, even then it was one of the few companies that actually, you know, did did have a values-based approach. And it was as I got through into business, as the years progressed and everything else. I became increased not not with Procter and Gamble, but became increasingly disillusioned with the lack of values in organisations and in companies. And so, when I stumbled across the research in, in in the military to find out that that you guys were living and breathing values in a way that few companies ever do, and the research into you know into the battlefield, what matters in the battlefield when we get into the three C's. And how love is one of the most important things to have in a unit, especially when you've lost a lost a member recently. It's really just that it actually turns people's perceptions literally on their heads, and that the whole idea that they, I mean, you know, the classic the myth that the people think the military is where you have command and control, and in business you have you have you know near democracy. When my experience is, it's the opposite, mm-hmm. and the, and, the, and the people's lack of awareness around you get to give orders under fire very high risk because you've included people in decision making in the past and they know that if if you're saying something then there's no and it's dangerous there is no other choice and you will have considered it because i know how good your thinking is and in business it's like you know just do what i'm telling you we have one of my colleagues here an army officer he um I'll try to keep this short story short, but he was deployed in Afghanistan as a, as a company commander. You know, so he's in charge of 140 soldiers or so. And unfortunately, there was a terrorist bomb went off mess hall, killed dozens of people, you know, many American soldiers and others. And you just imagine the chaos. So he wasn't in the tent, in the mess hall, when the, when the, but he heard. He heard the explosion, knew what was happening. And so he knew they had to do a triage and start evacuating injured people, wounded people from the uh, from the location to the hospital. So he saw this young enlisted woman who's a, you know, E2 is private or, you know, very, very, very junior NCO. And she's a truck driver. She had her truck. She says, come here. Says, hey, look, you need to go down to the side of the, of the explosion, start helping evacuate people. And she just froze. She was just terrified and she couldn't act. Now, in a movie, he'd have stood up real loud, yelled at her and said, I'm ordering you to go to do this or else. 
That's not what he did. He sat down and got on his knee and he held her and he said, look, hey, this is pretty bad right now, isn't it? He just talked to her in a conversation voice, but you're a truck driver, right? She goes, yes, sir. You know how to drive a truck? Yeah, you know where the mess hall is? Yes, sir. Just drive down there and get some people and drive them back. Can you do that? She says, yes, sir, I can do that. She got and just drove right off and did her mission. But, but it illustrates that, that understanding human behavior, having that ability to trying to say, sort of to, in a genuine way, relate to subordinates in that sort of manner will swallow ordering people around every day, okay? And so in my six years as an Air Force officer, and now my almost 23 years now working for the Army, I don't think I've ever, I never gave an order like you see on TV or in the movies, nor did I ever receive one like you see in TV or in the movies. And I haven't seen them since, but people, officers and NCOs exert influence by using their, their natural talents of, of competency and character and caring and get things done that manner, not in a autocratic sort of way. That is often the sort of the stereotype that you see in military leadership. So what you just said there, Mike, was that you mentioned the three C's of that the research shows makes a difference in, in leading in, in extreme situations and in my experience of leading in a normal situation. And that's competence, caring and character. Um, character being the, the the focus of your book. I just wondered if you could just take us through the, the 3C model and sure. and why it's proven to be so efficacious. Yeah, I just tell everybody out there who's listening that I think this is one of the most important things I've seen come out of military psychology in the last you know 15 or 20 years. And I'm going to give full credit to uh, retired Colonel Patrick Sweeney, who's a, a PhD psychologist, my colleague at the time here at West Point. He's now a, a professor at at a university down in South in North Carolina, but Pat Sweeney was um, an Army Lieutenant Colonel in 2003. He was actually in graduate school in his last year in graduate school, getting ready to finish that year uh, to get his PhD in psychology. But so that's when we, as you may recall, when the U.S. invaded uh, Iraq. His former one of his former commanders was then a, a division commander, a Major General Dave Petraeus, a name you may or may not recognize, but a, an important general in our uh, historically and been in the news a lot subsequent to that, literally called him and said, Pat, I know you're in graduate school, but I need you to come help me with this invasion because it's uh, we need your expertise. So Pat talked to the graduate committee, was able to say, look, I think I can still collect this my dissertation data. I'll just collect it on leadership in combat. So Pat, at the, with the presence of mind, yes, sir, I'll help you out. Came up with this quickly designed study and probably worked to you know one o'clock in the morning for 18 days in order to get it ready to go. When he arrived in into Iraq and, and Kuwait and crossed across the line of departure into, into battle, I think actually I think he was by that point they were attacking Mosul. But he collected data uh, on army soldiers of sort of every rank, from, from privates who are subordinate to everybody else to lieutenants who are in charge of 30 people, to company commanders who are in charge of 150 people and, not, and so on. And what he was trying to do was to unpack in a, in a real environment, in real combat, I mean, bullets are flying, right? People are dying, things are happening. You wanna know under those types of conditions, what's the most important element of leadership? And he found it to be trust, okay, trust. If you truly trust your leader, now ask him that listeners to, Hear, hear about this example from combat, but to translate this to whether you're a firefighter or a law enforcement officer or a corporate leader, to what extent do your followers trust you? And to what extent do you trust your people that, that lead you? Through all of this, he found these, what he came to call uh, the three C's. And I'm going to actually make it five C's, if I may. And it may appear that way in the second edition of our book, but right now it's the three C's. And the first three are competence. So, so what Pat found, and this is kind of common sense, right? A leader, especially in an in extremist environment like combat, better know their job frontwards and backwards. You've got to be good at what you do. Now, that doesn't mean that a brigade commander needs, needs to be able to take a machine gun apart and put it together and, you know, in, in 30 seconds blindfolded at night. But you need to know the soldier's tasks. And you need to know more than that. You need to know strategy and you need to know tactics and techniques and procedures so that when you give an order, which is talked about orders, when you give a directive, you know, the soldiers will, will believe 
and trust that they're getting good advice on what to go do. That's the best course of action. So obviously competence. And I'm gonna back up with a non-military non example here in just a second. So the secondly, second C is character. So a character is can be a number of things. Uh, it can be moral virtues of honesty and integrity and love and things like that. It can be performance character, performance virtues like grit and determination, or it can be the type of character virtues which help you be more resilient, like a, a belief in a higher power or spirituality or transcendence. So you have competence, you have character, and the third C that he saw very regularly, just very, very reliably in his data was caring, C-A-R-I-N-G, just caring, genuinely caring for your subordinates and those around you. So let me just comment about an example. So put yourself back in, in life when you were a student, either in college or let's say even in high school, and think about your teachers. So the teachers you loved the most and mattered the most to you, was it the one who was, who was the best physics teacher and knew the most about physics, but you couldn't trust him, he said that, but you couldn't believe what he said out of class, or that she didn't seem to care about you as an individual? You know, so you could be hyper competent as a teacher, but if you didn't clearly communicate high and show and demonstrate high character to your students, and you didn't care about them, you would never be that teacher that was selected by the students as being the best teacher around. So really, if you're lacking any one of those three C's, your ability to be trusted and your ability to be a leader, I'd say in any circumstance, whether it's teaching or, or, or combat, maybe some real parallels there sometimes is compromise. I would also throw in and submit to you, there are two other C's worthy of, of a consideration. The fourth C could be communication. Good leaders communicate clearly and effectively. Uh, they don't communicate entirely by email or, or texting. You know, they, they can stand in front of a group and I guess these days a Zoom call and can clearly state mission and objectives. And the fifth C is commitment, commitment. By gosh, they're good. they've got a job. We're going to get it done one way or another. We're going to get it done. So if you think of those five C's, character, excuse me, competence, character, caring, communication, and commitment, those are commonalities, not just in the military, but any situation where, where humans lead each other in difficult tasks, I would submit. It's certainly been my experience of applying the model for the last decade in, in business. It's also the, the, the three C's has also helped me to, to calm down during COVID when I was seeing, you know, leadership errors. And I found it, I was getting quite emotional about some of the things for the, I mean, our politicians over here and perceiving them to be character or caring outages. And then when I thought about it some more and talked to other people in the field, I thought, well, it could just simply be a competence issue, which, I mean, we've still got a problem. Right. But that when if someone is if someone fails just from competence, then it's certainly not as bad as when someone's out to, you know, you know, got character and, and caring issues. Now, there's been some data that's come out since then that would suggest that there could be some character, you know, quite significant character issues in the UK government. But let's not, um, you know, I'd rather not focus on them. On those yeah, I mean, you're absolutely, absolutely right. So, so I wrote a a post or a, a blog for Psychology Today a month or so, a couple months ago, about applying this 5C model to the, our national response to the pandemic. But I think you could put in UK or Australia, I guess part of the UK, but uh, any, any, any country. But in the US, you know, through the first, what, almost year of the pandemic, if you just, it'd be very easy you want to talk about the president, but you could look at your local county executive or you could look at a governor or your local mayor. You know, given you've heard the phrase, everybody out there sort of the fog of war. I mean, I will grant there was a lot of fog of war when it came to the competence of how to deal with, yeah. with, with this pandemic. And I think Americans are not different from other citizens from other countries who have some degree of tolerance and understanding that under these difficult situations, you don't expect perfection. You just expect consistent, you know, kind of consistent effort. Yes, sir. But there were reasons, of course, to question the competence of many of our leaders because they'd say one thing one day, another thing the other day. You know, first you don't need masks, then you don't need do need masks, and you know, it just constant you know churn of of uh, like they don't know what they're doing, which would make you infer lack of competence, and that's not good. 
And then, oh. then the character issue comes into play. Uh, and I'm not going to go down the road of naming names, but you can fill in your own leader, uh, you know, as an example, leaders who are known to lie. You know, so we can be a cynical, say, are your leaders who are not known to lie? Yeah, I think so. There's some good leaders around. But, you know, we had a, in the U.S., every most newspapers and media sources had a running count of number of lies issued by national leaders every day. And you know, somebody would just, you know, you know, you know the coverage of it. Yeah. So there's a character issue. It's certainly hard to sense how many of our national leaders, and sometimes local leaders, actually cared. Do they really care? It seemed like maybe they cared more about the economy or the stock market than they cared about people dying the tune of five now five hundred over five hundred fifty thousand deaths. You know. Well, then you can add those other three two C's. What about communication? Well, there were huge inconsistency in communication, right? It's one day it's one thing, one day it's another message. And then finally, you know, just was there a commitment? It didn't see, it seemed like the commitment wasn't there. You know, by April, we were declaring victory over COVID, by certainly by August, and yet there's not victory. So I think all of us, everybody, everybody in the face of this planet who's enduring this pandemic. Just take your own lens and think about how your leaders have, to one extent or another, uh, adhered to these five C's, at least three of them, and in how they handled the COVID response, the national COVID response. There are countries who've done better and some are worse, right, for a number of reasons. And, you know, the thing that, that stands out for me, for people in the services, competence is a character issue in the sense that if you are leading people in a dangerous situation, it is your moral duty to be good at what you do. Yep. And and so in that sense, and that from a business perspective, is not we we recruit for competence first. Over, yeah. you know, can this person do the job? Okay. But actually, for you guys, it's like, well, what's their character going to be? Because you know, especially the last twenty years of coming up, you know that there will be times when that character will be sorely tested, and you that that character will become evident to you. And if it's in the wrong environment, people are going to die because that person has not embraced their moral duty to be good at what they do. Yeah, the impact of, of uh, character flaws and competency flaws are magnified when times are, you know, when times are tough, right? When lives are on the line. We have several examples in the book, which are negative examples, meaning that they're exemplars of how not to behave. So we talk about a battalion commander in charge of about 500 soldiers in Iraq, the height of the war, who was no well known to be highly competent. He was a good war fighter. You know, he, he, he knew all the tactics, techniques, and procedures needed to manage a lethal force, you know, in, in, a, in a war setting. But while he was in country, in, in Iraq, and it turns out he'd been doing it beforehand, of course, he developed an inappropriate relationship with the wife of one of his subordinates through emails and phone calls, and it, was, and it came to light. And it, it was brought to uh, actually General Caslin's attention as a, as a, you know, as a violation of, of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and, um, and they had to fire him. And what it done, think what that moral failure or character failure, the impact that had on that entire battalion. It wasn't just that commander. If it just got rid of him and everything would be fine, okay. But he eroded trust in the leadership, the chain of command. It, it, it soured subordinates views towards leaders in general, it basically neutralized uh, the effectiveness of that unit for quite a long time until they got a competent person with character who cared in to rectify the situation. It was a huge effect. It was a real virus that went into a, so to speak, got into this, this organization and infected it in a bad way. And we have other examples or even worse, you know, where leaders are absent, incompetent, of low character. And sometimes it actually leads to Things like soldiers killing innocent, innocent villagers and civilians and just, just awful stuff. In a less uh, dramatic way, I suppose, I see this in my consultation with sports teams. You know, so an exemplary organization is the San Antonio Spurs. And, you know, American basketball at its best. They, they've been, they're struggling a little bit this year and last year, but they'll be okay. Because they are an organization that embraces positive values not just as an organization, but among their players, and an expectation that players look out for each other and they're good role models and they you know, promote resilience for each other in both on the court and off the court. 
And so the, the general manager told me a story about when he first became the GM. And I'm not, not going to name the player, okay? But probably wouldn't matter to you guys anyway. But this player was super competent, super competent player, power forward. Later had you know several NBA rings, or previously had some, some NBA rings, so championship rings. GM watched him in practice for about two weeks and talked to players and knew immediately they had to uh, trade him and get rid of him. He was a cancer to the rest of the organization. His character is horrible. He lied. He couldn't, you know, he, he engaged in unscrupulous behavior, couldn't be trusted in that respect, and he didn't care about his teammates. And they traded him for players who technically were not as competent, but it was truly a case of addition by subtraction. They, this team went on first quickly, not just one, but five, I think five championships in the NBA because it's an organization that embraces you know, sort of good character. And when they identify a person with a problem, they dealt with it. So I think you can see that, you know, there are other sports organizations that don't do that. So there's a football team, a college football team I'm aware of, again, I won't name names. They've, they've had 20 or 25 losing seasons in a row. They're desperate. They'll go some season, they're lucky to win one or two games. Well, this last off season, they hired a, a, as a head coach, a guy who'd been fired two or three places for just egregiously bad behavior and bad character and just terrible things, you know, and they justify, well, he's a winning. Well, they win this year. They're actually winning this year. They did a good job. They had a winning record, made the playoffs. Uh, This is not top tier American football that you might be familiar with, but second tier college football. But if we're right in the character edge, and I believe we are, you know, it's a win at any cost. We're going to win no matter what. We're going to win now, short-term approach. And you have to wonder what attitude has been conveyed to the players, the staff, and how long he can keep this going. If, if history proves right, within a year or two, he'll fail. And it'll be an abject failure and a, a headline sort of a listening failure. So that focus on win now at all costs is not a good focus if it's at the expense of character. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join the community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. And you can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization. And if you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thank you for listening.